<laughs> hey boys. Hey. <laughs> Can I show you my ankle? <laughs> Where's my fan? <laughs> Good morning, good day, and good evening. And good night. Good night. Welcome to the Insomnia Report. Episode 34. Woo! Yeah. Things we wish we learned in school. Get your textbooks. It's weird because we're recording in the daytime. This never happens. <laughs> I think it's happened twice in our recording history. Yeah. Um, but it's okay. It's kind of nice. It is kind of nice. Yeah, kind of kind of fun. I guess we should do this when we do our paranormal ones, so we're not as... No, no. no I mean, classes no. happen during the day. You know, this is more realistic. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm Margo. And I'm Elizabeth. And we're the two friends and roommates that like to talk about the things... That keep us up. At night. night. Yeah. Cool. So we if this is your first time listening, welcome. If you have listened before, welcome back. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for listening. So I guess we'll just jump in. I'm going to go ahead and light the candle, hold the matches, do this little thing, little yes. spiel. What is up this week? What's kept you up? So I met up with my friend Kelly last night. Yeah, we love Kelly. We got fish and chips. It was lovely. Oh, Shout out to Kelly. Fish Friday. Yeah. For listening. Kelly's yeah. a great, awesome supporter of the pod. Thank you so much. Thank you. We love you. Um, anyway, she told me a story about, I, I guess this happened like not too long ago. So she lives downtown right. in downtown Chicago and in a high rise building near her, she read some news story about how there was this guy, he was like 30 or something, who was found dead in his apartment. Oh. And then... Um, it was like during a welfare check or something. Oh, that's so sad. And then the police or whoever, when they were like removing his body, were like, hmm, like it smells really weird in here. And it wasn't because of like him like, being dead. Right. It was like chemical smells. Oh, no. And so they were like, oh, we should go back and examine this. Like further. check it out, maybe. Perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. And then. They went back. I mean, I haven't read the article. This is, she, this is just what she told me. So right, I, yeah, I'm sure it was correct, but I still have to read right, the actual right. article. But she said that um, they went back and found like all these chemicals like all over the place, and he had like pills, like tons of pills, like, and then they found in the fridge pipe bombs. <gasps> yeah. No. And they took them and they went out and like detonated them near Soldier Field or something. And apparently. They said that it was just, like, the pandemic had a really, like, bad toll on his mental health. And he oh. kind of, like, was alone and, like, kind of spiraled. I know. That's I was like, so oh, my sad. God. Yeah, but, like, what was he going to do with those pipe bombs? I don't know. That's terrifying, like, though. I know. Oh, my God. Anyway, oh. that's... <laughs> I've been thinking about that. Oh, well, yeah. I need to look up the, the Trib story on it, but... Oh, that oof. gave me goosebumps. Yeah. That's anyway, so sad. that's what I've been thinking about. Oh, gosh. Well, a further point of mental health awareness and you yeah. are not alone and please don't make pipe bombs that like if you're gonna get a quarantine hobby make soda right. bread please right 
yeah reach out to other people please if you're struggling yeah, do that first and yeah. then make soda bread yeah while you're on the phone baking with them. is very therapeutic I, for i'm some not people. trying to make light of it I'm, I'm just oh my gosh it just makes me so sad i don't know i know Oof. anyway what about you um i mean i told you this already but I keep finding, I don't know if it's just the algorithm because of my research, but I'm finding random facts about Abraham Lincoln <laughs> now. And he was actually a bartender before he was president, which is kind of cool. I and love it. In Illinois, him and his colleagues, I guess, opened a bar called Barry and Lincoln. And yeah, I, I thought that was pretty cool. And they had to close it because Barry was an alcoholic and he drank most of the alcohol. So they had to shut it down. <laughs> so sad oh my gosh it kind of sounds like burying a lincoln yeah isn't that weird yeah it's not really weird i'm just like also found out that essentially abraham lincoln's death is the reason why we have like funerals the way we do and why it kind of created the industry because it was Mm. more of a like celebration and you know the funeral industry is a billion dollar yeah industry so i thought that was really interesting too i didn't know that yeah wow Mm mm-hmm Oh. Because before it was just like a, a family thing, but now it's like, oh, you have to pick how to like bury them and what casket mm. and like all these yeah. things. And <clears throat> I don't know, funeral flowers. Like I'm sure there was like a certain extent of that, especially with famous people. But I think it's, I don't know, that's interesting. And then I also watched a video about like morticians. You you tell me about them too. You follow one on Instagram. Oh yeah, I love morticians. <laughs> I could never do it, but I appreciate that people do. Yeah, someone's got to. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. I guess some people just find peace at like helping people and their families. But anyway. That's a good point. Yeah. So as I hinted before we started, because I go first. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about the Victorian era. Okay. And I want to know a couple things. What the heck did they do? <laughs> like, what did you do during that time? How did how did you have fun? And Did they have fun? <laughs> I think so. I think you and I probably were friends in the Victorian era in a past life mm. for a lot of reasons. Okay. But, I'm um, excited. I also wanted to know about dating because, I mean, how, you know? <clears throat> Especially because you let me swipe for you on Bumble um, a couple of days ago. And oh, I was yeah. like, wow, this is so different. Like, I, I know that you know, dating used to be more of a, like, business transaction. It's like, oh, you dated to, like, move up in class or you had, like, it was such a big deal and now it's just like, oh, cool, he has cool glasses and he likes craft beer, so I'm going <laughs> to go out with him, you know? I feel called out. I'm not trying to call you out. But <laughs> no, I'm but just, you're right. You're I'm right. just saying, like, you know, now we just have access to hundreds of people and it's so weird. It, it's just, it's weird yeah. to me how accessible things are and it's, you know, I wouldn't have met, like, how do people meet? You know, like, I would not have met my boyfriend if it wasn't for online dated. Right. You know, so it's like, I would actually have to go to, bar- well, <laughs> I mean, not that I, you know what I mean. Anyway. Yeah, go out in society. Right. In the world. Right, which is, like, fine. I like to go out, like, you and I like to go out. We have fun, like, yeah. on New Year's and, you know, when we've gone to different bar crawls or whatever, but it's, like, just to have to be on your game so often and have like that chance of oh you know that guy made eye contact with me across the bar so now it's like right all right game on but obviously it was different back then because you didn't have bars until like the 20s you know right well not like that you know I know what you mean social (laughs) or like god forbid your parents choose someone for you 
like a family yeah. friend or something right. oh my god it's like you will marry lord huntington it's like but he has me but he's my cousin <laughs> but he has mud and chaps <laughs> no oh man that would be a deal breaker for me especially the cousin part same you're gonna marry your 27 year old cousin 13 year old <laughs> still not over it no still me not neither over it. oh god so okay. what do they do so i'm gonna start with how they had fun and to my first point of how you and I are past life Victorians is they would go have picnics in cemeteries. Oh, I love that. And they would like to walk around. And at the time, cemeteries were looked to be more like parks and they didn't really have public parks in the sense. So when you think about in Chicago, we have a beautiful cemetery called Graceland and it really does look like a big, beautiful park. There's a pond, there's it's really gorgeous and we like to walk around it and it has like paths and stuff but that's what they like to do and the sad thing behind that is the mortality rate was really high between women and children at the time Mm. so for the victorian era it was kind of a way for you to still be with your family members which i think is really sweet and it makes me think of the movie coco oh i I love that movie and i kind of wish we like kept that up you know like i i really think that's special but agreed um and like I said, cemeteries had a different design versus the big public cemeteries were gorgeous and vast and and really meaningful in a way to kind of symbolize how much the person was loved versus just like a small church plot. Mm-hmm. So it was just a way for you to hang out. And sometimes they got so big that they had to have like restrictions on like cleaning up and and how many people could go and certain things so I thought that was really interesting that is um it did die out this trend in the 1920s because medical advances were getting better so the mator- oh. mortality rate wasn't as high which is good but I kind of wish we still did that you know like at yeah. least go every now and again but I had a professor in college who would say the greatest sign of love that we can like give someone is a cemetery yeah i thought that was nice he was kind of weird but i yeah, thought that I was mean, a good yeah. point no i think so i mean i don't necessarily think i mean my dad always told me something about the funeral industry that kind of made me raise an eyebrow is some people i'm not saying all funeral homes or anything do this but they will kind of play on people's emotions mm. to make an upsell so it's like oh you don't want to bury your father in cedar he he should have mahogany it's like you could literally just dump my body in the ground you know like right. give me a pillow and my favorite stuffed animal and i'm good mm-hmm. like don't spend thousands of dollars in a casket right anyway that's just my two cents but i'm not gonna die till i'm like 97 so we don't have to worry about that not gonna gonna well i had a fortune teller tell me that so i'm fine okay <laughs> and i have a very <laughs> long lifeline on my hand so i'm good whenever i i feel sad i'm like oh no i'm okay <laughs> my lifeline is kind of strange but okay we'll have to take well, a look yeah so all things considered i think picnics at a cemetery is not abnormal now something that is pretty weird that i don't really like to do is people like to go visit morgues mm. and examine bodies and this was a really big public outing and actually in paris the paris morgue was a huge attraction and newspapers would write about weird cadavers that were unidentified and people would just go check them out as if it was like seeing a mummy at a museum or like King Tut's tomb, you know? It's just, oh, like, oh, do you want to go to the Paris morgue? Oh, yeah, I heard there's a new body there. Like, what? Can you imagine like going on a date to the morgue? No. I mean, 
Picnic at cemetery, yes. Actually seeing the dead body, no. Oh. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. No. They also had a love for taxidermy. Not necessarily with humans. Um, okay, <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, that's a weird way to start it. Not with humans. Um, but they had a love for taxidermy, and they would actually make little scenes out of animals because they had an interest in natural science and art. So they would make scenes like hamsters doing croquet or kittens having a tea party or a little school of rabbits cheating on an exam. Like these are actual taxidermy artworks. That's so weird. And at the World's Fair in London, there was a German taxidermist by the name of Hermann Plackert, P-L-O-U-C-Q-U-E-T. It sounds French. Sounds French. I don't know. Herman. Herman. There was a taxidermist named Herman. The German Herman taxidermist. Uh, He would make art showcases that drew large crowds. And actually, at the 1851 World's Fair, it was Queen Victoria's favorite stop. And you can look at these little taxidermy. (laughs) I'm going to show you one. Do you know what her favorite, like one was like what animal i think it was was? the the rabbits in the classroom (laughs) (laughs) oh my god Uh, okay so put your drink down (laughs) these are the kittens having a tea party no no They didn't like kill kittens. To no, do they that, were already they? dead. Oh, they were already okay. dead. <laughs> um, oh. uh, that's so weird. That's so weird. <laughs> like I get like little sculptures or like little stuffed animals, but they're like literally they're, dead. They're literally kittens. dead kittens. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Like, as long as something died naturally or, like, ethically, I don't have a huge problem with taxidermy. But it's right. just, like, the things, like, the little scenes, it's, That's like, a bit much, so weird. You know? Yeah, I don't... It, it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie to you. It really is. But this is the... Okay. This is the rabbit classroom. <laughs> your face i wish i could see your face they have little pens <laughs> <laughs> they're writing in their notebook, <laughs> in their notebook. <laughs> oh my gosh if you, you guys should look these up like you can't obviously you can't see it because well, this is a podcast but right. like google these images please it's, it's really it's bizarre unless it's, you're it, triggered by things like that then don't do that um but. here's here's the little here's the croquet <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's interesting how they seem to give these animals like thumbs because they're like holding <laughs> they're holding things, objects like yeah. a like a pen or a croquet. Me when I'm going to my first ball. <sighs> they put a dress earrings. on it and earrings. That's a kitten. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, that's so weird. It's, it's pretty weird. It, I'm not gonna lie. If it, it feels like I. I'm in another dimension, or like I'm in a really weird oh Lewis Carroll book, you know, like w- very I'm- Alice in Wonderland. I don't know. So yeah, that was something that they thought was really cool. Like my favorite painter is Monet. I don't really. I'm glad the taxidermy thing didn't pick up. 
I want to know who was the first person to think of that. Like, like, I'm sorry your cat died, but do you want to make it have a tea party? (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, my God. Okay. So they also enjoyed what was known as freak shows. I, I think you, when you think of like a classic circus, you think of that like striped top and, you know, the man that could lift like the thousand pound things or, or the bearded lady and things mm-hmm. like that. So these were really popular at the time. And there was a Russian sideshow performer and his name was For- Fedor Jetschu. He was Russian, and his stage name was Jojo the Dogface Boy. Okay. And he was a man with hypertechosis, which is also known as werewolf syndrome, where mm. you have abnormal hair growth all over. So he had, like, hair all over his face and body. Oh, wow. And he was a very popular, I guess, attraction, which makes me sad because mm. I, I hope he embraced it rather than I mean to be at a freak show I don't know I guess it's also a way for you to like just like make money right you know yeah like what else are you gonna right like he didn't have you know July to I don't know I don't know I mean like theoretically I assume he probably could do other things but like if people weren't accepting I'm sure they weren't yeah you know so but I mean he was able to make it work but he signed a contract with a guy named P.T. Barman Barnum? Barnum, yeah. Oh. Um, do you know about him? Barnum and Bailey? Maybe. Circus? Yeah. 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 So he signed with him and Barnum took him to the United States in 1884 when he was 16. So so Barnum kind of created like this story and it was obviously very theatrical, but to kind of like hype it up and, you know, there's that I just imagine like the ringleader who's like feast your eyes and all that all that jazz. So he basically told or fabricated a story that involved a hunter who tracked Fedor and his father to their cave and captured them. So they made it seem like they were actually like werewolves or, or wolf people when really mm-hmm. they just had this condition. And he described him as a savage who couldn't be like civilized and he made a point of stressing his resemblance to a dog he said like when he was upset he would growl and bark and you know fedor obliged by doing this like for the act Mm. but i think it was kind of i think the showmen weren't treated very well so there was a little controversy but anyway that was something that was very popular hmm as mentioned in our last episode about the ghosts of the White House, spiritualism was huge during this time. So people liked to participate in seances. Uh, they would hire mediums. They would practice dumb suppers and so on. They would, for Victorian ghost hunting, nowadays we use voice recorders, th- thermometers, spirit boxes whatever bill chapel decides to make that day (laughs) with his flux capacitor and everything but they would use candles to try to detect things so depending on how it flickered or what the candle flame kind of looked like they would use that to be like okay flicker it twice for yes or something like that Um, they would also use dowsing rods and things like that and the ouija board was invented during that time oh god disclaimer never play with the ouija board um, unless you're like in a church with a priest, but I don't think they'd let you do that. No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think it would be That's allowed. That's a bad idea. I'm not endorsing that. Okay. 
So as far as etiquette goes, to prevent yourself from having uh, certain desires to suppress how uh, in the mood you are, (laughs) you would actually eat cornflakes. So cornflakes were sort of made from an accident, and this was a huge spiral I went down because I had no idea. But John Kellogg, you know, the Kellogg, he was kind of an early health nut, and he founded a health institute in Battle Creek, Michigan, and he ran a world-famous med spa resort called the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was where he had the wealthy come and stay sort of at this resort to get some R&R. So they would receive anywhere from twelve to 15,000 visitors each year, and some of them were very noble guests, including Henry Ford, Teddy Roosevelt, Amelia Earhart, and so on. Wow. He was pretty ahead of his time in terms of diet and nutrition because he believed in trying to prevent illness rather than trying to just react when someone got sick. So I thought that was really interesting. He thought it was like diet, exercise, well-being, that sort of thing. But according to History.com, he had a perspective of biologic living, which emphasized exercise, massage therapy, salt baths, drinking lots of water, and avoiding alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. That's some pretty good For the time? Yeah, Yeah. like even now, I know I should kind of follow that, and I'm I'm not very good about it. So (laughs) for, you know, the 1870s or whatever this was, that's pretty impressive. He uh, thought it would be best to focus on digestive health, like avoiding fatty, greasy, salty, or spicy foods. I'm throwing this in because I read it, and I just want you to know he went to the zoo, and he studied gorillas, and he took note that they pooped multiple times a day, so he encouraged his patients to do the same. To poop? To poop, yeah. Can you, like, choose to poop? (laughs) Well, he would encourage them to eat foods that would help with that. fiber. Yeah. Which I'm like, okay. Sure. Like, sure, sure, you should. I'm not going to talk about bowels other than that. I just thought it was interesting that he's like, oh, maybe we should do that. But mm. I'm, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to go further from there. Another thing to note about Dr. Kellogg was he was super religious. Oh, no. So while I agree with most things up to this point, he thought sex was a big no-no. According to Mental Health, Kellogg thought sex was detrimental to the emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, so much so that him and his wife had separate beds like throughout their marriage, and they did not have any biological children together, and all of their children were fostered, or they adopted seven of them. Okay. So, like... (laughs) I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. So so he thought that like sex was detrimental to health, but like what about the continuation of the human race? He was raised in a family where they thought religion was more important than education. So I'm not sure how he became a doctor. I guess at the Mm -hmm. time you could just be like, hmm, (laughs) I'll do this today. Probably not. But he believed, him and his family believed that Christ's second coming was going to happen. Ah, uh, okay. And I'm not sure what his logic was, but he was very against sex. I'm not sure if he just wasn't sure about his sexuality, so he kind of repressed it. It was like, sex is bad. Mm, Don't do yeah. it. 
I, that's my logic for anyone who's very anti-gay or very because mm-hmm. an- they're not accepting what they want so they're trying to project that in an extreme way that's just my yeah. theory but I'm sorry if I'm speculating or offending anyone but I mean if you thought sex was bad though Dr. Kellogg thought masturbation was the worst of all <gasps> like absolutely horrible and he thought that creating a bland diet would be a cure for this so he thought that when you ate like savory sweet indulgent foods like that is what kind of triggered your body to want like other savory things so he's like i'm gonna make really bland stuff so people will be bland and like not have these desires that sounds so boring i know so i I agree with like the spas and the massages and like the (laughs) exercise and the water like everything up to that point but i'm like i'm Okay. I want to eat my spicy food. Right. Gosh darn it. I like salt. Okay. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, and coffee and alcohol. Um, anyway. So, but uh, yeah, essentially cornflakes was kind of invented to be like a way to repress like masturbation, huh. which is really interesting. This is true. And I, I think it's so wild. But this exact series of events is up to, for debate, but I guess... Something as exciting as inventing cereal would cause a lot of people in the family and people who work there to kind of be like, oh, I played a part in it too. So John Kellogg was the doctor and the wellness guy, and he had a brother named Will Kellogg, and he was the business guy in the family, and he managed the wellness retreat. He like worked in the kitchens. He, he ran the show, and John was taking care of the patients. So one day he went into the kitchen and this is Will. Will went into the kitchen and he found that he left some dough out overnight and it actually caused the dough to ferment. So being the business guy at the time, he's like, meh, and he cooked it anyway. Um, So he put it through the roller and because of the fermentation, it caused the dough to kind of break down into smaller bits. And like when he baked it like twice, a couple of times, it like made it really crisp so he was like, I might be onto something here. So he experimented and tried a different, a bunch of different recipes. So that's when cornflakes were born because he found wow. that cornmeal made it a little bit more crispy and light. And he was, like I said, the business savvy one. So he was the one who decided to market it and to sell these. And he is basically the reason why we have cereal for breakfast today. Oh my gosh. Because during the time people would often just have dinner leftovers for breakfast and during the industrial revolution if people needed to like leave for work at a certain time to make food was kind of a big effort so just to be able to have these like boxed cornflakes with milk it was a faster more effective way to get your start wow which is really interesting Anyway, the the brothers kind of had to fall out because Will was making a lot of money from the cereal and John was like, but it was to stop the masturbation. He didn't care. <laughs> he didn't care about the money or anything. He was like, no, like it's for the greater good, for the greater good of the children. And <laughs> um, so it's a long winded way of letting you know how cornflakes were invented with the intent to lower your sex drive. Um, but as we know, that's like not really the case anymore. There's a really funny drunk history episode about this specific oh, event. I bet that's so funny. It was really funny. <laughs> um, but it, it, like I said, it's kind of he said, she said. But essentially, 
John was like, I need to create something like kind of bland. And he like essentially made granola, but there were some patients that couldn't eat granola because it was hard on their teeth. So they tried Mm. to make something a little softer. And then Will was the one that marketed it, which is why Kellogg's is known as what it is today. Which anyway, super interesting. I'm kind of, it's kind of funny. I'm picturing like these really rich swanking people going to this med spa in Michigan. They're like, ooh, like so fancy. And then they're serving them (laughs) cornflakes. And they're like, ooh, can I have some more of that? (laughs) Well, what is this delicate concoction? (laughs) Because everyone was British back then. It's like, oh, can I have some biscuits with my (laughs) cornflakes? It's just so interesting. But yeah, they, and that was why... Anyway, super interesting. Like you could you could go down into like the whole history of Kellogg's, but basically they had a fallen out, and like John was kind of mad that Will was making money off of this and and whatever, and he wanted a piece of it. And then anyway, uh, you know, wow. sibling rivalry. But I'm I'm glad he marketed it because I really like Frosted Flakes. Oh, me too. Yeah, I like Corn Flakes too. I do too. Like not a lot, but I I'll, right. I'll eat them. Right. Yeah. No, it kind of makes me want some. So this has been an ad. <laughs> this, this, is whole not, time. this is not sponsored. This is not sponsored by, by Kellogg's. Kellogg's. <laughs> I don't think they would appreciate they this would, kind of... Uh, <laughs> like, you're not supposed to know that. <laughs> if you look on the Wikipedia page and there's a bunch of articles about it. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so another health fad of the Victorian era was to swallow tapeworms so, oh. you could, uh, so they could eat your fat. So you'd put a tapeworm, like a little baby tapeworm, into a capsule and then you would swallow it. And women, as we know, would wear extreme corsets and they would fast and they would dress in hoop skirts that were so large that women might get stuck into doorways. Oh. Could you imagine? I mean, okay. Yeah, I could see it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just so uncomfortable and they wear so many layers and I can't imagine what they did in the summertime. It's just brutal. But... Hoop skirts actually caused a safety hazard because they would sometimes knock over candles and set themselves on fire. And this was actually a very common casualty. Oh, my God. What a way to go. That's horrible. Because it's like you have so many layers and you'd get stuck in the doorway and be like, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) So bad. Oh, my God. So if you wanted to look young and youthful, nowadays we use vitamin C serum and retinol. In the Victorian era, you would put raw meat on your face overnight. And you would just slap a steak on your face overnight if you wanted that youthful glow, or you would put animal fat all over for that dewy look. Being pale was all the rage because it meant you didn't have to work outside like a peasant. So So if you did go outside, women wore gloves, hats, veils, and carried parasols. So that's why they had parasols, to look more pale. They actually sold little wafers lined with arsenic. That they would eat to lighten their skin. Girl. Because it created less pigment and you would get a transparent whiteness. <sighs> but don't worry, it was advertised as perfectly harmless. Man, they did some really questionable stuff. Oh, just wait. Okay. Eyeliner had mercury in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Face lotions, powders, and blushes contain lead and radium. I knew about the lead. Yeah. Uh. Basically looking like you had tuberculosis meant you look good because you were thin, pale, had red cheeks and watery eyes. 
They also believed that having big pupils was very attractive. So people made eye drops with nightshade. Oh, oh my God. So your eyes would look more dilated. Were they just dying left and right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is why everyone was so crazy and wanted a little taxidermy. Like, oh, my God. party. <laughs> That's why they were hanging out in graveyards, because they were all dying yeah. from the tapeworm arsenic. Oh, this is a nice tree. <laughs> oh, my They would, God. like, bathe in it. They would... I don't... It... I don't know how they didn't, like, die or wither away right there. Oh like, God. they were literally eating arsenic wafers. That's so... It's so uh, bad. Like, they had no idea. That's why everyone was so crazy. <laughs> Um, if you wanted a better smile, people made dentures from the teeth of deceased people. I'm just gonna... Okay. If you were mourning a loved one's death at a funeral, or if you're just mourning in general, women women wore black veils. However, it was a trend that women would make jewelry that contained your dead husband's hair. Oh, I've seen that actually. Have you seen yeah. the wreaths? Yeah. 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 So if you you could have a locket with your husband's hair in it as a symbol of mourning, or you could make wreaths of multiple family members' hair as a tribute to them. It's weird. It's Some weird. of them are, are really cool. Looking. They are really cool, but when you like think it's hair, like when you yeah. realize it, you're like, mm. Yeah. It's like a serial killer. Like this whole thing is like a serial killer. Like right. Oh, you have nice teeth. Mind if I take a look? Her, her, her. It's <laughs> have this arsenic wafer. <laughs> like, there's so much more in touch with the dead. Right. I think in it every is very way. interesting. Yeah. It, yeah, it's so interesting. They just wanted to die so bad that looking <laughs> like you had tuberculosis was oh, hot. God. Like, ooh, you look sickly. Come over here, honey. Like, <laughs> Speaking of deceased family members, it was very common to take photos with dead family members as a way to remember them okay so you would take a family photo like all normal everyone gathered around like the christmas tree and then like if there was a dead family member they would be like propped up and Mm. then they would paint the eyes later on after the photo developed okay yeah that was very common i went down a huge spiral looking at those photos and i was very uncomfy Mm. But it was something that okay. they did to remember it, or they would send cards of like the dead person and be like forever in our hearts and like send them out like Christmas letters. It's like, what? Yeah, they're just so kind of like comfortable. <laughs> they're just very comfortable with it and yeah. nonchalant. Where nowadays people, not saying you like you should be comfortable with dead bodies, but like right. nowadays it's so much different. Well, it is. And I, I mean, I guess I just can't imagine being like, all right, everyone, gather around. Like, can you hold up, like, Agnes's head? Like, oh, <laughs> oh God. Smile for the camera. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. Everyone's smiling. Which I, I appreciate that they are more in tune with it and they, yeah. like, try to keep their memory alive. But at the same time, I guess it's just, it's very uncomfortable to me. Like, oh, yeah. Me I don't, too. I, me would, too. I don't condone that. No, thanks. So, kind of shift gears a little bit. When it comes to love and dating, Ooh. here's some rules about courting and wooing. This was the first step of love and marriage. How do people meet? Typically at balls or dances. If you have ever seen Pride and Prejudice, that's exhibit A. This would typically be a woman's way of coming out and not in the way that we do now where we say that we're gay or non-binary or however coming out to you means. 
This just meant that she was ready to find a potential suitor. Hmm. So she was coming out of her parents' house in her little knitting circle. I don't know. So a woman could never go to one of these balls alone. She would always have to have an escort. And she would have to be supervised by someone at all times, never ever to be left alone. Like, a woman on her own is very dangerous, I guess. Or, uh, boring. Uh, I know. A woman could not go up and talk to a man, and she had to be introduced properly before they started conversation. Let's say you were dancing with a stranger at one of these parties. You could not speak to them before or after until you were properly introduced by the host or an esteemed person. Hmm. Which... It's kind of weird. Could you imagine kind dancing weird. with someone and being like, I can't talk to you. I can't talk to you. I don't. <laughs> I haven't been introduced. <laughs> That'd be so stressful. Uh, that would be so stressful. What if you're like, hi. <laughs> right. I'm shrewd. <laughs> so if a woman, you know, danced with them and then they were introduced and they talked, it, if the, the two of them decided to go for a stroll, it, it meant like wink, wink, things are going well. Mm. And, but they would have to be supervised, of course, on of this course. on this stroll. There were also things called call-in cards, which was like a little business card that suitors left for each other where men could give the woman, my name is this, this is my address, and she could like request for them to like visit their house or, or he could visit. It was basically like a, a business card for single people. Flirting had to be very careful because you can't come on too strong or say the wrong thing. And if you're always supervised, you can't just be like, hey, honey. So women would flirt with their fans. Mm. So depending on how slow or how fast they were going meant a lot. Depending on how much of the fan they showed said different things. How like much of the face. So if you're like batting your eyes while fanning, if you're fanning fast, it means you're like really into it. If you're fast and slow, you're like, go on. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Have you seen Princess Diaries? Like oh, the second yeah. One? It's like, this, I don't know. The fan says a lot. It was considered rude to talk loudly, so people would talk quietly so they wouldn't bring attention to themselves in publicly. So I just imagine everyone being like, how is it? It's very nice weather. I read a book once. I'm not a witch. <laughs> I support that though. It's yeah. annoying when people are loud in public. Maybe oh it's just me. God. No, it is. Like when they're drunk and really loud and like, oh my god, why is that? Shut up. Like I wouldn't necessarily. <laughs> Can you imagine going up to someone at the bar and being like, <laughs> good evening, madam. <laughs> um. According to actual etiquette books, so there's tons of etiquette books for the time for both women and men, and in some etiquette books, it actually said, quote, a lady should be expected to shine in the art of conversation, but not too brightly. She should cultivate a distinct but subdued tone. So you can't be too outgoing, but you can't be too shy because then you come off as boring, but then you have to be able to hold a conversation, but you can't be smarter than your man. What about the men? What were their conversation roles? Well, if two men were talking in the presence of a lady, they couldn't talk about anything like scandalous, which I guess is common etiquette. Like you don't just be I like, I, maybe. Uh, you <laughs> Depending on what was considered scandalous at the time. Right. My ankles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was also considered to be incredibly rude to smoke a cigar in front of a woman. Okay. 
according to the etiquette book, no sexual contact is allowed before marriage, and a man is to demand innocence from ladies of class and especially of his future wife. So, you know, like, if men had sex, like, that's one thing, but a woman had to be, like, completely pure for her future husband. Uh, it would destroy her character. <laughs> I know. A woman was discouraged to not accept gifts from a suitor. However, there was symbolism in flowers. So, for example, a red rose meant that they were, like, taken by them or really interested. Or if you were married, like, it meant, like, true love. However, a yellow rose meant, like, no, let's just be friends. So, like, if a man gives you red roses and she exchanges, like, a yellow rose, it's like, no, like, thank you. That's kind of easier than, like, hashing it out. Right. You know? Yeah. Like, where's my yellow flower? Where's my yellow flower? I thought I packed it. (laughs) Men had to limit who they flirted with. And according to the guidebook quote, or the guidebook titled, The Marriage Book for Young Men, published in 1833, you couldn't take your politeness too far. Because, like, if you were to be flirtatious with everyone, you would give women the wrong idea because women just wanted to get married. So if she thought, like, oh, like, he's my suitor, but he was that way to everyone. Like, you didn't go on dates traditionally, you know? Like, so what are we? Like, I heard you, like, winked at someone or you tipped your hat to Abigail. Like, what what are we? Win Corden. They, like I said, they must always be supervised and the man would go to the woman's house and they would typically hang out like in the parlor or the drawing room and the parents or the supervisors would put out a cordon candle so they could talk until the candle burned out. And if the parents liked them, they would like raise up the candle on the candlestick so it was like taller because like it was a candlestick that was tall and you could like raise the level so you could give it more time or not and depending on the candle so or if you didn't like them they would like put short candles there and be like all right here's a little tea light (laughs) go (laughs) your time starts now (laughs) all right buster um your main date options were strolls in the park or sometimes you could play piano duets together and if you're really feeling dangerous you could sit very very close to your suitor on the tiny piano bench like talk about steamy oh wow (laughs) could you imagine if you were that was your only form of intimacy before your marriage like playing ode (laughs) to joy and your butts touch on the bench like oh my god (laughs) heart and soul oh my gosh (laughs) you could hold hands only if the road you were walking on was uneven to help the women balance and that was the only time it was acceptable if you were in cordon a man was to walk on the closer side of the street by the curb just in case the street was muddy or if someone like went by it and splashed mud so the woman's dress wouldn't get dirty. When crossing the street, a woman could lift her dress up, you know, to make sure she walked better, but she couldn't use both hands because it would be vulgar to show that much ankle. <gasps> I know. <laughs> could you imagine? Ugh. <sighs> Walks were typically in parks and public places because if you were to walk out in the country, they could like potentially hold hands and God forbid. No one would see. Oh my gosh. I know. If you went to a dinner party, a woman couldn't go up to the buffet to get her food. She would have to tell her man what she wanted and he would present a plate to her. 
which I don't like because it's like, what if I want like more bacon wrapped dates than you're going to put on my plate, sir? <laughs> right. <laughs> like I wanted seven and you gave me one. Let me go select my food. Sir. I mean, I guess if I'm wearing a hoop skirt, I wouldn't want to like knock the table That's over. That's true. You know? So let's say all of those piano duets and those strolls took off and you're ready to kick it up a notch. So a man would ask the father for the hand if allowed, which is still done today, I think. And according to the guidebook, a proposal is best made in person with distinct language so the girl would not misunderstood the gentleman's intent. Like, is there a, a different way to say, will you marry me? Like, how do you, how do you mess <laughs> yeah. up that intent? But... I don't know if he could not bring himself to propose in person for whatever I'm I'm not sure if he was so nervous or like could you imagine being like I I can't do it guys like right so a writing a letter was perfectly acceptable which I would be kind of mad about yeah I'd be mad about that (laughs) a woman could play hard to get and she doesn't have to accept the first proposal and she could say that you know she was a little coy about it but she would probably say yes but you know, in all those Victorian romance movies, they're like, "Are you, are you crazy? I can't marry you." <laughs> um, if you were engaged, you could go for walks unchaperoned, and you could hold hands then. Oh, okay. So ticket. All uh, right. Um, so, like I said, they could be like unchaperoned. Like you know, they didn't have to have your dad sitting at the chair by the fireplace like crossing his arms watching your date the whole time and like watching the candle like hurry up (laughs) like so he could the the man your fiance could leave but he would have to leave at nightfall and the reason being is if the engagement fell through for whatever reason and the man spent the night the woman's reputation would be forever ruined and she would never be able to find a man again even well, if, like, they didn't sleep together. It's like, oh, my God, he stayed the night on the on the fainting sofa. Like, <laughs> um, oh, my God. Okay. A man would have to give his fiance his attention at all times in public. Like, everything was on her. He had to carry his her bags. And if you were feeling super cute, you could finally exchange gifts by giving each other locks of each other's hair. So romantic. So sweet. Wow. It was believed that if a couple were to, like, let's say you actually get married and you're ready to have, like, little chicken nuggets running around. (laughs) If a couple were to not actually be, like, fully in love, it was believed that you would produce ugly babies. (laughs) So if you're ugly, it meant your parents didn't love each other. Oh, my God. That's so scarring for the children. (laughs) Your parents aren't in love. You're ugly because your parents didn't like each other. Oh, my God. So if you want good-looking kids, you you better be madly in love. God damn it. <laughs> and if you had love on stairs, it meant that your child wouldn't have a crooked back and it would cause them to have a staring problem, which I don't... I know stairs and stairs, but it's, it's not the same thing. Oh, but, okay. Like don't like is that a common thing that they had to write in the like don't don't have sex on stairs maybe they were all birth defects from all the poison that they were ingesting probably and they're like oh well we did it was on the stairwell let me tell you so i did find this dating profile in a magazine from 1865 and like it, it was an article i guess like the parents could read about and be like oh like this man can like check it out so Here's his profile. A young man in Maine advertising for a wife 
speaks of himself as follows. <clears throat> I'm 18 years old, have good teeth, and believe in Andy Johnson, the Star-Spangled Banner, and the 4th of July. I've taken up a state lot, cleared up 18 acres last year, and seeded 10 of it down. My buckwheat looks first rate, and the oats, <laughs> and the potatoes are bully. <laughs> I have got nine sheep <laughs> and a two-year-old bull and two heifers besides a horse and a barn. I want to get married. I want to buy bread and butter, hoop skirts, and waterfalls for some person of the female persuasion during my life. That's what's the matter with me, but I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I would swipe left, sorry, <laughs> despite his buckwheat being first rate. But he has good teeth, and he has, like, a farm. Was it yeah. the Star-Spangled Banner? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it was. I think it was his desperation at the end. But I he's mean, only 18. Like, live a little, dude, you know? I don't know the man. And then I will end it with a Victorian magazine made an article where they asked spinsters why they were single. And here's some of the answers. And oh, some of them wait. are completely, like, hilarious. So, and this is from an article of, from Ranker. So here's, here's some of the answers. Because you don't need another pet in the house. <laughs> because being a wife is too much work. Fair. Because being single pays better. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to find a good man in a sea of fools. <laughs> <laughs> because marriage is the freedom of death. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Because marriage is the death of freedom. Oh, gosh. Because men don't realize how much you're worth. Because men are like bad desserts. <laughs> because forever is a very long time. True. Because you haven't found one that's attractive enough. Because all the good ones are taken. Because you haven't been called to action yet. And because you don't follow your man abroad. Hmm. So those are reasons why Spencer's stayed single. And that is some of the etiquette and hobbies and dating life of the Victorian era. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like some of those reasons are the same today right. for a lot of people. But like, I guess it's it's more like if you want to be single forever, like good on you. But back then it was like, oh my God. Yeah. The audacity of a woman. All right, Myrtle. Like, <laughs> oh. like and it's a wonderful life when whatever, what's her name? Um, you know, the alternate reality. Where, Mary? Yeah. It's like, she's closing up the library. She never married. And it's so dramatic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What would her life be without a husband? Oh, my God. She's a librarian. And she she has a job. Oh, my God. Women who think. Okay. Anyway, so that's, that's aye, my tale aye. for you today. Thank you. Uh, that was very interesting. Yeah, I thought so, too. But, I mean... The taxidermy, that gets me. Mm, maybe but. it was, like, because they were just so, like, repressed. Maybe. Um, maybe. All the cornflakes, man. <laughs> yeah, maybe it manifested in really weird um, uh, side hobbies, like <laughs> taxidermy. <laughs> so what I do you know. I picked up a taxidermy during the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to live like a Victorian heiress. I don't oh, know. Oh, God. If I ever do that, kick me out of this apartment, please. <laughs> Uh, Elizabeth's been me to have a talk. 
<laughs> we need to have an intervention. Your taxidermy hobby has gone too far. It's it's everywhere, man. Like I just I don't want to look at these squirrels anymore. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I'm gonna bring us down a notch. Sorry in advance. Well, now you know Dayton techniques. So of, yeah, of the. At so. least we don't have arsenic, like cosmetics anymore. So we have that to look forward to. I yeah. Anyway, okay. I'm thankful for. All right, I'm ready to to bring it down. I'm going to try to... Okay, all right. So in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yeah, he did. He was a dick. (laughs) Tell me about it. Oh, my God. And he found the Americas. Did he, though? Well, like, like he found them, like, you know, on, on his own. Sure. But he obviously wasn't the first person there. The Europeans were like, wow. (laughs) <laughs> what a guy. They're like, whole continents to explore and profit from. Yay. <laughs> Great. Uh, unfortunately for the white colonists, indigenous people already live there. Around 60 million of them, six zero, uh, spread throughout North, Central, and South America. So for context, the population of Europe at the time was between 70 and 88 million. Wow. In, in less space, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But the colonizers brought disease Mm -hmm. and it spread quickly by the beginning of the 1600s just over a hundred years after columbus's arrival 56 million indigenous people had been wiped out oh so um this is from data from the public radio news show the world i'll include the link in the show notes but in a hundred years from 60 million people to 4 million people oh my god i know that was 90% of the population of the Americas and 10% of the global population at the time. Holy cow. Yeah. It's the largest human mortality event in proportion to the global population. So, for example, 80 million people died in World War II, but that number was 3% of the world population at the time. Wow. Um, Because we had more people. Right. At that time. Jeez. Yeah. In Europe, the Black Death killed 30% of the population. Mm. So just to compare. And in the Americas, smallpox, influenza, and the measles combined with war, famine, slavery, and more wrought unimaginable devastation among indigenous populations. Mm. Their immune systems had no previous exposure to these diseases, so it made them really dangerous. Indigenous populations had farmed, worked the land, and managed the forests before the Europeans got there. And without, so with this like mass death event, without these people there to manage nature, nature took over again. And the explosion of new plant growth absorbed so much CO2 at the time that it cooled the entire planet in the 1600s. Wow. So, like, yeah, so there was no one, like, cutting down trees or farming or whatever. So nature, like, yeah, came back, basically. Scientists can find evidence of this in Antarctic ice samples where they, like, drill down really far and look at the ice. And I don't know how they do it, but they can tell. Well, I think it's kind of like when you look at the sedimentary rocks, like, you could tell different layers of Mm -hmm. that. So it's, and, like, when you look at a tree ring. Exactly. like, the layers of ice. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. I call it nature. 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 So this mass global cooling because of the because of this led to bad weather, which led to worldwide famine and starvation, no. sparking rebellions in numerous countries. So the global impact of this mass death was astronomical, which is it's 
it's like so unimaginable like so right. horrible and the people at the time also had no idea that that this was all connected you right. know like yeah. their their famine in japan is caused by like killing indigenous people in the americas Jeez. but this was only the beginning for the indigenous populations of the americas mm. today i want to focus specifically on north america centuries of uh, white colonists enslaving indigenous people, murdering them, stealing their land, decimating their resources, and forcing them onto reservations, which is ultimately genocide. And this continued into the late 19th century with so-called Indian boarding schools, Mm. also called residential schools in Canada, but I'll get to that later. So as we've already seen, the story of the United States has been one of trying to get rid of indigenous people. After all, their claims to the land and essentially their existence was complicating manifest destiny. Do you remember learning about that? Yeah, I had. She was like, manifest destiny, and she'd like have jazz hands. <laughs> uh, I love her. Bless that woman. So their existence was complicating manifest destiny, which was the belief that settlers were destined by God to expand westward uh-huh. across the continent. Uh-huh. God told me to go west. <laughs> so I did. I must lay claim to this land. It is my... In the west. It is my God-given duty. Exactly. Yeah. I, it's so... It's... Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. Mm. Mm. Not great. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Native Americans were fighting back... The entire time and populations continued to increase of indigenous um, people in the Americas despite the efforts of the U.S. government to displace and ultimately murder them. So in the late 1800s, the U.S. government decided to find another solution to what it called the, quote, Indian problem. And this came in the form of what's called Indian boarding schools. The goal of these schools was to assimilate indigenous children into mainstream American culture, a goal that had been discussed since even before the founding of the United States. Mm -hmm. So in 1634, the Jesuits established a mission in what's now Maryland, whose purpose was to, quote, extend civilization and instruction to his ignorant race and show them the way to heaven, end quote. Other similar schools popped up here and there, but the first federally run Indian boarding school was the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Proponents of assimilation for Native Americans argued that they would blend their Native practices with a common American culture through education, allowing them to become peaceful, productive members of society. Um, Yeah, not sure really where to begin with that i understand why the people in power would take this perspective because conflict with indigenous people over land and resources was a constant problem for Mm -hmm. the u.s government but like it's like horrible and like why should indigenous americans have to do anything because they were there first right you know what i mean it was it's like they just i don't know like the u.s government just couldn't imagine like open land like they needed to they're like you don't want to profit off it like you don't want to just eat the meat of the buffalo and like right what and so i don't just makes me so mad we ruined everything okay i know capitalism man Mm -hmm. so the first 
federally run Indian boarding school was the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It was opened in 1879 with 147 students, ranging in ages from 6 to 25, but most of them were teenagers. Two-thirds of them were the children of tribal leaders of the Plains Indians, and they came from the Lakota, Cheyenne, Kiowa, Pawnee, and Apache tribes. The school was founded by this guy named Richard Henry Pratt, who was a Civil War veteran, and he coined this phrase, quote, kill the Indian, save the man, which is essentially the same thing the Jesuits were saying in the 1630s, which is you need to get rid of all aspects of Native culture in a person to make them an acceptable member of society and to survive in the world. He also wrote, quote, the Indian is born a blank, like all the rest of us. Transfer the savage born infant to the surroundings of a civilization, and he will grow to possess a civilized language and habit. End quote. So it's like, yeah, this whole idea of like white supremacy, like s savages, sort of this, like, yeah. So before he opened school, while he was in the army, Pratt taught native prisoners of war English and how to read and write and kind of like dress them in military uniforms and basically treated it as an assimilation experiment and he brought this to the federal government and was like look what I did like I can teach these people and they can learn English and these subjects and like be like us kind of thing mm. and so then the federal government was like okay we'll give you money uh, you can open the school. And so then they started, yeah, opening these boarding schools. And at the Carlisle School, they would, they basically forced children to attend, um, sometimes moving them from thousands of miles away. And it was also a tactic that the U.S. government used to encourage good behavior on the part of tribes. So the government sent Pratt to the Dakota territories to recruit children from the Sioux because the government wanted to take their land and the children would be used as leverage. Like, we have your children. Do what we say. Yeah, yeah. basically. Ugh, that makes me sick. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Uh, and another goal of the schools was to save money. The government believed that it would cost less to open and run them than it would cost to fight like wars with mm. the tribes mm -hmm. a lot of native americans were very skeptical of all of this well um yeah. <laughs> for good reason obviously but Trust your gut yeah but pratt's argument to try to convince them to send their children away was that not being able to read or write english was a strong disadvantage for them and part of the reason the government had been able to take their land away in the first place Oh. Sort of like a, like, this is for your own preservation kind of thing. Right. So some Native leaders were on board with this opportunity, but others, as I said, were skeptical. In other cases, they were threatened with imprisonment or taking away food rations if they didn't give up their children. Dude. So, yeah. And the practice of forcibly removing children from their families was justified on the part of the government by saying that native parenting practices were inferior to white parenting practices and that they needed to be taken under the wing of the state to be 
Yeah. More I don't know. White. Yeah, essentially. Mm. So these Indian boarding schools perpetuated what I and many others would argue is cultural genocide. Mm-hmm. They the native students were forced to change their names. Kind of like I read that like they would have like a list of names on a board and say like pick one. The native students were also forced to convert to Christianity, cut their hair, wear European style clothes, and stop speaking their native languages, like even with each other. They and they also couldn't keep anything from their home culture, so if they brought anything with them, they had to like throw it away. Pratt, the guy who founded the school, believed in assimilation by total immersion. So like nothing from their native cultures could be there. Students were punished through corporal punishment, you know, like hitting kids and solitary confinement. And the school was run in kind of a military style and based on the way that he, like, taught the prisoners of war English and stuff like that. So, yeah, kind of pretty violent. Subjects taught included reading, writing, and math, and boys and girls were taught separately in things like vocational training and domestic duties, I guess, to reinforce gender roles. Mm. But the... The thing is that these gender roles didn't necessarily exist in their home cultures. So it was, yeah, it was different from for them. Mm. And during the summer, the students lived with locals and or on farms to work for, I think, for free. So like force free labor. Um, or they were sent to a summer camp in the mountains. I bet it wasn't a fun summer camp that where they made friendship bracelets. Well, it's. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I read a lot of different accounts and not all of them are negative. Okay. Well, that's good. But like, but that obviously doesn't mean it was like a good thing. Right. But it wasn't necessarily um, like a death camp, but it wasn't. Right. Like like one guy, I forget I forget who it was exactly, but he was saying that they went to this summer camp and like really enjoyed it, but also what they would do is like the white people who lived nearby would come to the summer camp and like make them shoot arrows for them. Okay. So it was sort of like watching them do that. Like it was kind of an attraction. Shoot your arrow for me. Ah, oh, cool. Right. Like, wow, a real Native American. Kind of, kind of weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Their communication to their homes was cut off. So Oftentimes, their letters back home were never delivered, and if they died, their families weren't notified right away. Oh. They were also subtly pushed to marry interracially, like marry white people. Okay. Because to, like, produce children who were less native. Okay. There are also many accounts of mental, physical, and sexual abuse and forced labor, like I mentioned. Eventually, some teachers at the school, they hired some Native teachers and Native activists worked to denounce the practices happening there, including one of the music teachers there named Zakala Sa, who was a Yankton Dakota activist and writer. And um, so there was a movement to fight against these schools. Sometimes the families of the students would camp outside of the school to be close to them because, yeah, I mean, that's like really sad. That's so sad. 
And Pratt also had a lot of photographers come to the school. He wanted to document what was what they were doing there. And they would take these before and after photos and use them as propaganda oh. to like tell people how great it was. So I, I wanted to show you one because I, I saw it and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. Dude. A little bit on the maybe more brighter side. The school was known for its, its athletics okay. and music programs. Well, that's good. And they encouraged students to join social clubs and work on school magazines. The football team was very good. Nice. And members included Jim Thorpe, who was the first Native American to win a gold medal for the U.S. in the Olympics. Oh, okay. And Joe Guyon and Gus Welch, who were famous football players. And the Carlisle Band was famous, too. It performed at every presidential inauguration that happened while the school was open. Okay. So there were, like, bright spots in this, like, awful institution, but ultimately... It was still, yeah, yeah, still bad. Problematic. When students returned home, if they returned home after graduation, many felt alienated and caught between two cultures. Mm. Some were viewed differently, criticized for being too white. Others felt ashamed of their cultures now that they had been sort of assimilated into the uh, white, I guess, society. And some couldn't speak their language anymore, so they couldn't communicate with their family members. Oh my God, that's so sad. Yeah. I read a story about someone who went to a different school, not the Carlisle school, but in 1945, a guy named Bill Wright, who was a Patwin Indian, he went to the Stewart Indian School in Nevada when he was six years old. And it was awful for him. They shaved his head. They bathed him in kerosene. I don't know why. Why? But Did it make like your skin lighter? I have no idea. He was not allowed to wear his long hair. Obviously, they shaved his head and he couldn't speak his language anymore. And he he also didn't know his name anymore because they made him change his name to Bill. And he said, I remember coming home and my grandma asked me to talk Indian to her. And I said, Grandma, I don't understand you. She then said, then who are you? Oh, and he said he told her his name was Billy, and she said, your name's not Billy, your name's Tarum. And he said, that's not what they told me. Oh. So I just, I, like, that's so that sad. That breaks my heart. Disease was also rampant at these schools. At the Carlisle School, there are, where, at the building where it was, there's 186 children buried there at the site. Oh. And many more than that, like many, many more died, but their bodies were sent back to their families. And the poor conditions there made it much worse. So, yeah, it was just like really awful. In 1903, Pratt, the guy who ran the school, was forced out of his position because he was like super against the reservation system and he said it stopped the assimilation of native americans and also he was against the like the u.s government has the bureau of indian affairs and he was against that too and so basically the u.s government was like bye like we don't like you and 
but it's just, I don't know. It's so like he as a person is so like obviously like terrible because he started this cultural genocide essentially. But after he left the school, he wrote a lot about Native American issues and advocated for their rights. Interesting. And then his gravestone, he died in 1924. His gravestone says, erected in loving memory by his students and other Indians. And he himself said that he viewed natives and white people as equals. Like, he genuinely thought he was doing good by by this and helping them. The alternative for him was seeing tribes on reservations like in poor conditions and i guess he sort of saw himself as this like white savior kind of guy but like whatever his intentions were at the end of the day the result was horrible right so i mean yeah i I don't know like i guess everyone who commits genocide thinks they're in the right anyway right at the end of the day you don't do that being like maybe i shouldn't yeah i don't know it's it's like so it's just very strange and yeah but over time more local schools for native children were opened and attendance at the carlisle school declined because like they didn't have to travel a thousand miles anymore to to get there to pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and in 1914 there was a congressional investigation into the school management and that kind of hurt the reputation and then in 1918, the school closed and became a hospital for injured World War I soldiers. Today, it's part of the U.S. Army War College. Hmm. But the Carlisle School became the model for the 26 federally run Indian boarding schools across the U.S. And there were hundreds more run by local organizations like churches that continued the forced indoctrination of Native children. And there were like over 350 of these schools throughout the U.S. Like today? No, but during that time. Okay, sorry. Yeah. In 1925, there were 60,000 Native children in these schools. Wow. But in 1928, there was an investigation that detailed the, like, awful things that were happening at these schools, and so then many closed. Then in the 1960s, Indigenous activists gained traction during the Civil Rights Movement, and then more schools began to close, and then the ones that were still open were handed over to the tribes to run as of 2020 there are seven federally funded boarding schools in the u.s the bureau of indian education operates for them and three are tribally controlled so they're not they're not what they were before that's which is good but in the 50s and 60s as as these schools began to close and were just like too expensive to run anymore the U.S. government was like, how can we continue this practice? Mm. And so what they did, they started a new project when they thought that was cheaper, which was taking Native children from their families and adapting them out to white families. Why? Well, I know, but like, ugh. <laughs> which is a topic for another episode. Sure. But it's, it's like, I can't imagine. No. Like, I cannot, like how horrible that no, that is it makes me so sick i just yeah <clears throat> so in total over 10,000 native children from 140 plus tribes passed through carlisle indian industrial school the cultural and psychological damage it and other indian boarding schools caused defies definition 
People were forcibly cut off from their culture, and many today are looking to reconnect through learning more about cultural traditions and language while still grappling with intergenerational trauma. And the details of these boarding schools and things like that have been sort of intentionally like downplayed as well in history textbooks, etc. So it's not like a super well-known thing. At least I don't think so. No, definitely not. So in one of the like major casualties of this system was language. So of the 115 indigenous languages spoken today in the U.S., only two are like thriving. Mm. 34 are in danger and 79 will go extinct within a generation without serious like revitalization efforts. Wow. So 99% of Native American languages spoken today are in danger. Of being a dead language. Yeah. Mm, It's so sad. Mm -hmm. And so when these boarding schools were happening and being funded, the U.S. allocated a total of like $2.8 billion to fund this system. But since the beginning of the 2000s they've only spent 180 million dollars to like help revitalize indigenous language so it's like not a serious effort effort on their part yeah wow but similar school systems were implemented in canada australia and new zealand Mm. in canada these schools were called indian residential schools and just last week the unmarked graves of 215 native children were found at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia, oh which was the largest one in Canada. Jeez. 51 deaths were officially documented there, but obviously many, many more were not. Jeez. Um, Canada has a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that's investigating, and they've determined that one in 50 children died at residential schools in Canada oh my God. during their existence, but this was on average, and so many were worse. A third of the children who died didn't have their names documented. A quarter didn't have their gender documented. Wow. Many are documented only with their given first names or their, like, new first names. English names. names. Yeah. And through the 1940s, death rates at residential schools in Canada were five times higher than among Canadian children in general. Oh, my God. Yeah. At many Canadian residential schools, the bodies of Children were not returned to their families, and the parents rarely learned how they died. Wow. Oftentimes, the only thing they would learn is, like, their name would be sent to what's called an Indian agent in their community, and then they would be like, they would know that they died, but they wouldn't know anything else. Jeez. In 1938, there was a woman in Ontario who learned that her son had died at a residential school from meningitis, and she requested to return his body home for burial. And the Department of Indian Affairs in Canada responded and said, quote, it is not the practice of the department to send bodies of Indians by rail, excepting under very exceptional circumstances. It was an expenditure which the department does not feel warranted in authorizing. Are you kidding me? The death of her son isn't warranted? Yeah, they're like, we don't want to pay for that, so we're not going to send send his body to you. Yeah. The main culprit was tuberculosis with very poor medical care. Sometimes the children received no treatment at all, 
and were just left to die of tuberculosis. Accidents like fires were also responsible for many deaths, revealing poor safety standards, obviously, in these schools. And several dozen children froze or drowned when they tried to escape. And when they did, no attempt was made to look for them, and no one would report that they were missing, like, for days and days. So it's like, yeah, it's unimaginable, and it still affects communities today. And, yeah, it just makes me really mad, Yeah, me obviously, too. and discouraged because this country was supposed to be founded on good principles. Right. But for who and what cost? Um, for white people and for God. Yeah. Yeah. In 2000, in the U.S., Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs Kevin Grover apologized to the Indian people for emotional, psychological, physical, and spiritual violence committed at off-reservation boarding schools. And in 2009, Obama signed an apology on behalf of the United States to all Native peoples for the violence, maltreatment, and neglect against them caused by U.S. citizens, which is nice, but, like, what else? Right. Like, here's <laughs> like, a piece of paper. But right. What, like, yeah. let's, you know, let's do something about it. Yeah. So that's that's basically it. It's horrible. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I also wanted to acknowledge that we record this podcast on the traditional unceded homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, which consists of the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations, and other tribes like the Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Sac, and Fox also lived here. Hmm. And Chicago actually has one of the largest urban um, native communities in the U.S. Didn't know that. Mostly because of like federal urban relocation efforts. Um, the government I don't know if it was forcibly, but relocated a lot of native people to urban areas, including Chicago. So, Ooh, you're right. That was not an uplifting tale, but I think nope. it's important because we definitely mm-hmm. didn't learn about that. We learned about Manifest Destiny and how great it was. But yeah, we didn't. I was thinking about that, too. Like, we really didn't learn about ne- Manifest Destiny as a negative thing. No, it was a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like. Gross. really weird yeah yeah oh boy wow mm. thank you again mm-hmm. thank you all so much for listening thank to you. episode 34 tune in next week for another round of true crime we would like to thank the artists that have helped us our music is composed by colin whitlish and music production is by justin toom and our cover art is by erica chase would you like to tell them where to find us? You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and you can email us at theinsomniareport at gmail.com. Send us your own listener report, suggestions for topics, etc., etc. Please. We would love to hear from you. Yes. If you feel so inclined, feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot to us. And... As always, thank you so much. I'm Margo. And I'm Elizabeth. See you next time. Stay sleepy. Good night. And spooky. Spooky.